0: Good evening, everyone. Good to see you all. Tonight, as we are working our way through Daniel, we are in chapter 6. And as we come to chapter 6, we come to one of the best-known, best-loved stories in all the Bible, the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Now, the year was roughly 537 B.C. Daniel, at this time, was around 86 years old. And so we read in verse 1, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And over these three governors of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Now, as we said last week, guys, it's important that we don't confuse Darius the Mede with Darius the First. Darius the First ruled Persia from 522 to 486 BC. It was during his reign that the Jews who were released from the Babylonian captivity, when the captivity was over, remember now Cyrus, who conquered the city of Babylon, the story goes that Daniel uh, met him as he entered the city and showed him a scroll of Isaiah where God, 150 years earlier, had called him by name actually 200 years earlier, had called him by name, told him he was going to use Cyrus to set his people free, and Cyrus would be used to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. It so freaked Cyrus out that he let the Jews go, and the first group went back in 536. So we're about a a year from that point. But understand, though, that um, at the time that the Jews began to rebuild the temple, uh Darius the was on the throne and um Darius the Mede this is the uh, a big um, confusion as we said last time uh historians are confused as to what the bible is talking about because we don't really see a ruler uh you know in in the history uh that was named Darius the Mede many believe it was probably a title uh, of the man king Cyrus appointed to rule the city of Babylon immediately after it fell to the Medes and Persians on the night of October 12th, 539 B.C. Now, as we talked a little bit last week, ancient documents tell us that his name, one of uh, Cyrus's generals, his name was Gabaru, also known as Agbaru, and uh, that Darius may have been a title meaning holder of the scepter. Uh, I'll read you what one scholar said, then we'll move on. I just want you to understand that And you know, archaeology is always finding things confirming the Bible. We may yet find something that says there was an actual king named Darius, not this general, Ugbaru, that many historians think must be the one that's being talked about here. We don't know. But I'll just read to you what we know at this point. One scholar had this to say on the subject. He said, and I quote Ugbaru was the general of Cyrus who engaged or who engineered the fall of Babylon and it is believed that he was appointed king of Babylon by Cyrus, who was urgently needed on another front shortly after taking over the capital. Ogbaro re- uh, reigned in Babylon for about a year until Cyrus returned and was himself crowned king. Later, Cyrus transferred the title to Cambyses, his son. There is good support for this position because in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, it says that Darius was, listen, made ruler over Babylon. This verse uses the passive stem of the verb hamlock rather than the more normal active form of the verb malach, which would have been used if Darius had obtained the throne by his own conquest or by inheritance. Also, Daniel never mentions more than the first year of Darius's reign, perhaps indicating that it was a short duration, that he only reigned a year until Cyrus came back, and Cyrus then took the throne because he was the rightful king. So listen, it says it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. Now guys, this was done to facilitate a greater amount of accountability throughout the uh, whole kingdom. You see, instead of trying to oversee millions of people that had thousands of local leaders over them, well, it was just better to a better idea to divide up the whole uh, kingdom into 120 provinces or states, whatever you want to call them, with each province having a leader known as a satrap uh, over each of them. Uh, then the king appointed three governors over the satraps that they had to report to on a regular basis. So these 120 leaders had to report to these three governors. Daniel was one of them. Uh, In this way, the king would be briefed by the governors. It's a lot easier to talk to three guys than even 120, okay? Uh, This way, though, the king would be briefed by the governors as to how the empire was running, that's true, but also it provided accountability as a way of making sure that no one was, you know, ripping off the king, stealing money that had been given in taxes to the various leaders. They had to, to give a regular accounting to the three governors, and um, it says that, uh, verse 2, that the satraps might give an account to them, the governors, so that the king would suffer no loss, okay? So very common back in those days for guys who were, well, it doesn't happen anymore today, but in those days, government leaders would tax the people on behalf of the king, but a lot of that money found its way into the pocket of the politicians, again doesn't happen today anymore, but it was a real problem back then, all right? Anyways, verse 2 says once again that Daniel was one of these governors. Verse 3, you know, and anything Daniel put his hands to prospered, okay? God blessed it. Like the cream of the crop, he always rose to the top. So verse 3, remember, he's 86 or 87 years old at this time. He's no spring chicken. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. Wow. No doubt it was the Holy Spirit that is referred to here. Daniel was a spirit-filled man, and that's what made him so successful. Spirit-filled also implies spirit-controlled. And uh, that's what the Greek idea of the word is. To be filled with the Spirit means to be controlled by the Spirit. Daniel was a man controlled by the Spirit. That's what made him so successful and magnetic in his personality. But listen, that was also the thing that made him so hated by his demonic enemies. And believe me when I tell you, these pagan cultures were very steeped in all kinds of demonic worship and, uh, you know, demonic oppression or demonic um, possession was upon many of them and so naturally a man filled with the holy spirit comes up against those who are filled with demons they're going to hate him and that's what happened Uh, it's interesting though daniel wasn't a professional preacher or prophet we see so many times in the old testament uh, men that are talked about are either professional preachers prophets and so on daniel uh, was more along the lines of what we would call today a government cabinet minister or even a christian businessman by today's standards he was working a secular job for king cyrus at the time but you know what you can be in the secular world and be a light in fact we're all in the ministry aren't we the bible talks about every one of us having given been given gifts by god we are all witnesses we are all to let our light shine we are all to live no matter where god calls us i've been uh, have the privilege of being called into full-time ministry, but everyone in this room, if you're a Christian, you are in ministry, and everywhere you go, you're to let your light shine. That, that is character, right? Daniel, no matter who he served, starting with Nebuchadnezzar, and then Belshazzar, and then now Cyrus, he always did it in such a way as that his life was a, a light to those in darkness, and uh, he preached the gospel with his very life, through his character, and so on. And, of course, everyone hated him, that, you know, he was over, basically. Uh, So we see in verse 4, so the governors and satraps, the governors also. There was only three of them. Daniel was one, so two governors, 120 satraps, 122 guys, okay, sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, concerning how he had conducted himself as a leader in the kingdom but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful nor was there any error or fault found in him wow remember what Paul said doesn't matter the size of your ministry he says it's only required of a steward we're all stewards a steward was some, someone who didn't really own anything but was put over another's property so a wealthy man would often have a steward of would be a household manager. They had a lot of money, servants. And so they would typically have a steward who would be placed over the household to uh, you know, buy supplies and make sure the servants had their job uh, for the day and so on. And uh, Joseph, of course, was a steward over Potiphar's house in the Old Testament. But Paul said, look, as Christians, we don't really own anything because we are the slaves of Christ. Once we give our hearts to Jesus, he owns us. We've given up all rights to ourselves, and as such now, we don't really own anything, although we own everything. The Bible says someday it's going to all be ours because our Father, uh, you know, owns it all, and we're co-heirs with Christ. But right now on the earth, we need to look at ourselves as just stewards over the household of God. And Paul says, it doesn't matter what ministry God has given you to do. If you do it faithfully, whether you're a Sunday school teacher, an usher, a greeter, set the chairs up in the sanctuary, or a pastor, whatever God has given you to do, if you do it faithfully for his glory, you will be rewarded as anyone in the kingdom. So that's something to think about. But when it comes to this situation here, I I always think as I read this, I think of what Peter said. In 1 Peter 3, uh, verses 15 to 16, he said, Look, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense, an apologia, an apologetic, uh, defense of the faith to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, but do it with meekness and reverence. Don't be cocky. Don't play the know-it-all. You know, you don't, you're not going to win people to Christ by acting like you're superior to them. You know, you have compassion, you have humility, and you share what God has done for you. You share... Uh, The fact that I'm saved, but I'm going to heaven, not because I'm worthy, but because of what Jesus did. Let me tell you about that if you're interested. And uh, Peter says, you know, just witness with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. In other words, Peter says, look, you're not going to be able to stop people from lying about you. You're not going to stop people from being your enemies because they're the enemies of the cross. They're the enemies of Christ. We're going to have enemies no matter how much we love people. But here's the thing. When people say things about you, evil things, make sure that they have to make them up because you're living such a good life. Your character is such where they have to make things up because there's nothing they can pin on you because you're walking uprightly. This is Daniel, guys. This was Daniel. Verse 5. Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Can you imagine this, first of all? okay, Especially because we live in Chicago. Uh, imagine trying to find somebody in government okay, who's been in government service for 67 years. And trying to find something that they've done wrong, like what they did with Daniel, but they found nothing. Imagine trying to find somebody, uh, you know, in Chicago government or governor's office in the state of Illinois, all right? And uh, sixty-seven years serving in you know that position, but they you can't find anything they've done wrong. Okay, no misusing of campaign donations or taxpayer money, no sexual scandals. Uh, No gifts from lobbyists, no questionable business deals. This was Daniel. I mean, in short, there were no skeletons in Daniel's closet. And so the only thing his enemies knew that they could use against him was, listen, his commitment to his God. You see, they all knew that Daniel prayed in his home out loud every day. He would kneel down, open his windows uh, in his upper room, and he would pray out loud towards Jerusalem. Verse 10 tells us that. Why? Well, it goes back to when Solomon was dedicating the newly built temple that he had built for the Lord. Uh, Why don't you turn to 2 Chronicles 6. In 2 Chronicles 6, Solomon is dedicating the temple. And everyone is gathered in Jerusalem for this momentous occasion. And Solomon is offering a prayer to God at this time. And we'll just kind of pick it up halfway through the prayer. You can read the whole thing on your own. But Solomon is saying to the Lord, Look, Lord, when your people sin, verse 36, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them away captive to a land far or near." Yet when they come to themselves in that land, they they come to their senses, all right? In the land where they have been carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in that land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned, we have done wrong and have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity, where they have been carried captive and pray toward their land, listen, And they pray toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city, Jerusalem, which you have chosen, and toward the temple, which I have built for your name. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplications, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. And it goes on to say, and bring them home. And Daniel's been praying that prayer uh, he's been in captivity uh, roughly 75 years 70 years somewhere around there he's 86 or 7 years old at this time but he's been praying that prayer you talk about a man who is faithful i mean how many of us pray for a few weeks and give up on something or a few months or if you're a real prayer warrior maybe you know a year or two some of you have been praying for years for people you love god bless you god bless you daniel had a heart for his people he could have said, you know what, I'm doing fine. I've done well for myself here. What do I care about these people? You know, they ruined it. They're the one. I wasn't involved in idolatry. I mean, it wasn't my fault we were brought into captivity here. And Daniel could have basically said, you know what, no skin off my nose what happens to these people. I'm living large. I don't care. But he was not that kind of a guy. He was a man who, was deeply, who deeply cared for his people, Because they were God's people. And he loved God. And so he prayed three times a day out loud. If he didn't pray out loud, his enemies would never have known he was praying three times a day. They all heard it. And so that's why Daniel prayed toward Jerusalem. And his enemies knew. This had been going on ever since Daniel had been carried away captive to Babylon. Uh, They knew he was a man of prayer. Someone who was faithful and committed to his God. Furthermore, they knew, guys. They knew that they could get the king to sign a decree that for the next 30 days, anyone caught praying to or petitioning any god or even any man other than the king himself would be punished by being thrown into the lion's den. They knew if they could just get Darius to sign that decree, it would be the end of Daniel. They knew it. Verse 6, So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, and the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or any man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Now, I don't know. Uh, every time I read this, I have to think to myself: I wonder what was going through the king's mind when he signed this. It seems like kind of an obvious setup in some way. You know, you, you smell a rat with something like this. Why are these guys so gung ho on the king signing this decree for the next 30 days? And I've always read that and thought, you know, I, just, I don't know, it just doesn't make sense to me that Darius would be so undiscerning, I, I guess, you know, I don't know what you'd say, but you'd think a guy in that position would be uh, a little more aware of people's motives and, you know, and it seems like he just took the bait and, and ran with this thing. But as I was reading the commentaries, uh, and uh, only words be really commented on this, he had a good take on it, I should say. One that I thought, okay, you know, that seems to make sense. That makes more sense to me as to why Darius would sign this decree in the first place. Let me read it to you. Words be said, and I quote, "...the administrators were very clever in the plot they conceived and the way they presented it. They knew that Darius wanted to unify the kingdom and as quickly as possible to transform the defeated Babylonians into loyal Persians." what better way than to focus on the great king himself and make him not just the supreme leader but the only god for an entire month to emphasize the importance of his law the officers requested the ultimate sentence anyone who didn't obey uh, the king's decree would be thrown into the den of lions of course their flattery fed the king's pride and he quickly agreed with them had the law written out and signed it. Once it was signed, the law could not be changed or nullified, end quote. So I do think that was probably part of this, that the king wanted to unify the kingdom. The last thing you want to do once you conquer an area is to um, keep all the fires of resentment going in people's hearts. You want to do what you can to bring people together and to get them thinking now, not as Babylonians anymore, but as Persians. That's good for the kingdom, right? So I I do see that. Now, verse 10 says, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day, and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days since he was a youth why did Daniel make it his practice to pray three times a day well I don't know for sure it might be that he was following something David said in Psalm 55 verses 16 and 17 David said as for me I will call upon God and the Lord shall save me evening and morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice could be that's what Daniel had in mind You know, as I was, uh, you know, meditating on this and just kind of thinking about, well, what would, you know, what would most Christians do if they were in Daniel's shoes? Um, You know, Daniel could have come up with some um, reasonable uh, excuses for why uh, he wasn't going to pray for those 30 days. Uh, One would have been, uh, you know, I just won't pray for the next month. It's only a month and then I'll be able to live longer. See, I mean, you know, if I pray and the king kills me, you know, what's that going to do for people? Okay, so I disobey or I obey the king's decree. Don't pray for that month. I'm going to live longer. Give me time to be, you know, a, a, more of a witness. I'll just be unspiritual for a little while. Or he could have said, I'm going to go to the king and turn those guys in. They're, they're, you know, they're trying to railroad me. I know what's going on here. I know my rights. You know, I'm going to make sure that the you know. How we get, I'm an American, I know my rights, they can't treat me like, you know, that kind of thing, right? Or, he could have said, look, for the next month I'm going to pray with my windows closed, quietly. Or, I can take a walk outside the walls of the city and pray in my heart, right? I mean, religion's in the heart. You don't have to pray outwardly, you know? But instead, Daniel didn't change a thing, did he? He went right on doing what he had been doing three times a day for 75 years years he wasn't trying to flaunt his spirituality either you know by being purposely you know demonstrative with his prayers like the pharisees did uh centuries later and jesus called them out in matthew 6 and said you know what don't be like these guys they're these pharisees they stand on the street corners and for a pretense make very long prayers to show people how spiritual they are and then after they're done with their little pious show they go and foreclose in some widow's house he says, look, when you pray, go into your closet, shut the door. Don't let, just pray in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. That wasn't Daniel. He wasn't trying to uh, show people how spiritual he was. It was just simply the pattern of his life. Pattern of his life. A life of devotion to God. And listen, no one and nothing was going to change that no matter what. You know, there are times... Where some Christians may have you know high-level jobs like Daniel, or you know Christians who have you know any kind of demanding job, often claim that they're just too busy to have a consistent prayer life. Well, Daniel was pretty busy; he was uh, one of the top three guys in the kingdom. But Daniel didn't feel that he was too busy for prayer. He felt like I'm too busy not to pray. I remember Martin Luther one time. I was reading something he said. He said that today I have so much to do, I have to spend extra time in prayer. He spent the first three hours of his day in prayer because he knew. The only way he was going to get through all he had to do, and to get through it in the power of God, was to be in communion with God. So he set aside three hours to pray before he started his day. Daniel made prayer a priority. And guys, whatever is important to us, we will make time for, and I'm talking to me just like I'm talking to you. We could all do better when it comes to prayer. Why don't we pray more? I think sometimes we're just too lazy. Sometimes our faith is such where we don't think it's going to accomplish much. Or we just feel like, well, we're too busy. I'll, I'll pray later on, but later on never comes, right? That's why it's really wise to... Start your day with prayer, because if you do it first, you're always going to get it in. If you say, well, i got a busy day, I'll wait till after the day is done, and then I'll spend some time praying, you're probably going to be too exhausted to pray, and you know how that goes. Well, I'll I'll pray tomorrow. There's a saying that some have written on walls, it goes like this, if you are really having a busy day, skip your devotions, sign Satan. Yeah. Look, the secret to Daniel's courage was his devotional life. As somebody has said, the man who kneels or the woman who kneels before God can stand up to any man. That was the secret of his courage. He received courage by spending so much time in God's presence. And when he needed that courage in front of the king or whoever, uh, just like his three friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, same thing, they were all prayer warriors. And so because Daniel had committed himself to praying three times a day for his people, as God had said in his word, right, that he was to pray towards Jerusalem, that God would forgive his people because they had sinned and had been taken captive into a far land. And so he was, he was responding and he was praying in obedience to what Solomon had actually uh, prayed when he dedicated the temple. So this led him to a point of decision. The king had now signed a legal decree that anyone who prayed to any other god for a whole month would be killed, thrown in the lion's den. So what does Daniel do? He disobeys civil government. We've talked about this, especially when we're in chapter 3, when Daniel was away on the affairs of state and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego disobeyed the king, Nebuchadnezzar's decree to worship the golden image, right, the 90-foot golden statue he had made. And um, They disobeyed the king as well because God had forbidden in the law that his people worship any other god but him. And now here Daniel disobeys a direct legal decree by the king. And um, look, as we have said before, let me say it again. We are called by God, commanded by God to be good citizens. We are commanded by God to obey the laws of our lands, uh, the civil laws of our, our land, our country. Uh, because in doing so, it, it, it makes us good citizens. And again, that's how we let our light shine, in part. But as Peter said in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. So if the day comes when a law of man violates something God has commanded, then we are to obey God rather than any kind of human decree or ordinance or law. And God allows it. If we are obeying him, putting him first, God honors it and says, in this situation, not only are you free to disobey a law, it's your responsibility. It's like God says to a woman, a wife, you are to obey your husband, or submit, I should say, to your husband, but as to the Lord. So if a husband ever tells his wife to do something God has forbidden or forbids his wife from doing something God has commanded, She must obey God rather than her husband, even though God has placed him in authority over her. The same is true with anything God has told us to submit to, uh, church leadership, civil government, and so on. And and often we can do both. We can honor the laws of our land and honor the laws of our God. But more and more they're conflicting, aren't they? So more and more we're going to have to decide if we're going to obey man denying our God or are we going to obey God and incur the wrath of man or government that's going to be the choice more and more in the weeks months years to come here's something though that I thought about in reading what Daniel uh, was going through here this incident in Daniel's life begs the question if Christianity suddenly became a capital offense could they find enough evidence to convict you and me are we letting our light shine or are we closet Christians? everyone's coming out of the closet but christians it's amazing everybody's out of the closet except christians they're hiding out because they're trying to be friends with the world and still have a relationship with god and paul the apostle said if i seek to be friends with the world i'm no longer a god pleaser if I, if I seek to be a man-pleaser, I'm no longer longer a servant of Christ, was how he actually worded it. But the idea is, look, we, it's the world or God. It's the, it's the world or Jesus. Okay? And Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. Now, he was talking about money and God, but it goes to anything. We cannot serve the world and the Lord. You have to choose. And Joshua said, as for me and my house... We are going to choose to serve the Lord. And would to God we all came to that, you know. And and maybe everyone in this room has. I hope and pray you have. But again, if Christianity suddenly became a capital offense, could they find enough evidence to convict you? Again, his enemies knew that they couldn't... I love this. His enemies knew they couldn't catch Daniel doing something wrong. (laughs) So they had to catch him doing something right. Right use against them. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5 verses 10 to 12? He said, blessed are you when people revile revile you and uh, say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. In other words, when they persecute you for righteousness sake, blessed are you. Blessed are you because you're on the right team. The world loves its own. The world doesn't persecute its own, Jesus said, John 15. The world persecutes those who belong to God and Daniel is being persecuted now for righteousness sake again verse 11 then these men assembled and found Daniel praying well of course they're waiting outside of his window all right the king signs the decree Daniel goes right home to do what he's always done and they followed him and they're all hanging out you know on the first floor waiting for him to open that window and start praying so they can say oh we got you you know so they assembled and found Daniel praying and making public supplication before his God. And they went before the king. Oh, they couldn't wait to run to the king. And spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, that Daniel, notice the dripping sarcasm, that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Why did these men hate Daniel so much, even to the point of wanting to see him dead? Well, we talked about the spiritual, okay? They were demonic, and he was spirit-filled, okay? So we understand that. But from a practical standpoint, why did these men hate Daniel with such a passion to the point that they wanted to see him dead? I thought of three things. You might come up with some others. First of all, pride. Pride. They weren't happy that an outsider, a Jewish slave, was now over them in authority. You see it in verse 13. Number two, envy. They were envious that Daniel had a higher position in the kingdom than they did and that the king favored him, ready to put him over the, over the whole kingdom, verse 3 tells us. But here's the biggest one I think, greed, greed. As long as a man of Daniel's character was over them and they had to report to him on a regular basis to give an accounting of all the money that was being taken in, in taxes and everything, as long as they had to, you know, report to Daniel... A guy of Daniel's character, they knew. With Daniel looking over the books, they couldn't cook the books. They couldn't engage in corrupt practices to line their pockets. So they wanted him gone. They wanted him gone. Pastor and author David Jeremiah said, and I quote, Darius was no fool. He knew that the princes were withholding money that they collected from taxation and that they were using it for themselves in costly government programs. (gasps) Thank goodness that it doesn't happen anymore today also. (laughs) But real problem back then. Look, in other words, Daniel was a light. And as Jesus said, those of the darkness hate the light. Turn to John 3. Of course, you all know it. But again, here's the division. You've got the world and the kingdom of God. You've got sons and daughters of darkness, and then children of light. We see it all the way through the New Testament, especially. But John 3, verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Didn't we celebrate that tonight with communion? That our Savior came into this world to save sinners. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So Jesus came into the world to save sinners, those who were condemned, uh, on their way to hell. Obviously, a lot of unbelievers don't realize that. They think they're good people. They think that when they stand before God, he's going to say, well, you know, you weren't perfect, but come on in. You know, you're just so lovable. I can't. Come on in. You know, like God's a big softy. You know, like God will... He winks at, he talks tough with sin, but he's really winking at sin. You know, it's, come on in, it's not that big a deal. It is a big deal. And people don't realize that they're condemned already. They think they're going to stand before God and plead their case. The case was, is over. It's been decided in the Garden of Eden. Man was declared guilty and condemned by God. A curse was placed on Adam and all of his descendants. So Jesus said, look, you know, I've come into the world... Not to condemn people, but to save them. They're already condemned. They're already going to hell. Verse 19, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. And so this is what Daniel was up against. He was light. He was up against all these guys who were walking in darkness. They hated him. They wanted to extinguish... You know, it's like you walk into a room and there's people in there and it's very, very dark, almost black. And then somebody turns on a bright light. Oh, my goodness. People are like, get out of here. You know, they're covering their eyes. It hurts, right? That's how it is when a spirit-filled believer walks into a group of people that are living in rebellion against God, love the darkness, are living for the darkness, you become a rebuke. You, you become a point where your light hurts them, offends them. They want to extinguish it. This is what Daniel was up against. Verse 14, and the king, when he heard these words, now he knew he was duped. Darius was a little gullible. here, but He was no fool. He knew immediately he, was, he had been duped because he loved Daniel. He did. He loved Daniel. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him, and he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. One author said, and I quote, there's a lot to like about King Darius, and one of the admirable things about him is that he was displeased with himself. Instead of blaming others, he knew that he uh, he was at fault. We can be sure he wasn't happy with Daniel's enemies. But he knew that ultimately he was responsible. Like Darius, our foolish decisions often haunt us. Often all we can do is pray and ask God to be to mercifully and miraculously intervene when we make foolish decisions, end quote. So we all, you know, we all make these rush decisions, don't we? And um, often we're, you know, kicking ourselves because we did something stupid. Hopefully it's not something you rushed into that was really uh, a large thing like marriage rushing into I tell young people please do not rush in to marriage make sure you prayed fasted make sure that God is in this make sure it's the holy spirit leading you not hormones because if you rush into something like marriage and you married the wrong person the world says just get a divorce God says no you are to stay married and trust me to make what is difficult beautiful. I can do that, but it's going to be a tough road for a while. Verse 15, Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Now, guys, once a law was enacted uh, by the king, the law of the Medes and Persians mandated it had to be carried out before sundown. And that's what they're saying. See, he labored all day. He he suspended all his work of the kingdom to study the law with a fine-tooth comb to see if he could find some loophole he could use to get Daniel off the hook. But the sun was going down, and so his leaders remind him, King, you know what the law says. Before the sun goes down, you've got to carry out this sentence on Daniel. So he really had no choice. The question is, why was the law of the Medes and Persians so ironclad? So that once the king signed a decree in the law, it couldn't be overturned or changed. It was because in that culture they believed the king was a god. They believed their monarchs were gods and therefore, listen, infallible. Infallible. And if infallible, then they couldn't make a mistake. You see, once Darius signed that decree into law, he couldn't change it because to do so would have uh, meant he would have had to admit he was fallible. He was caught in the horns of a dilemma, we would say. Okay? On the one hand, he loved Daniel and knew he had been duped into signing this decree. But on the other hand, everyone in the kingdom saw the king as a god. Gods don't make mistakes. You can imagine how if he had tried to overrule this law, it would have created a ripple effect of the kingdom that would have undermined his own authority. He tried his best, but couldn't find a loophole to get Daniel off of the situation. One author said, and I quote, Since Darius was a god, quote-unquote, And the people were praying to him, how could he make any mistakes? How could a god not punish someone who had broken one of his laws? Furthermore, the laws of the Medes and Persians couldn't be annulled or changed. For the entire day, Darius ignored all of the matters concerning the kingdom and tried to free Daniel, but his attempts all failed. Of course, Daniel's enemies were on hand to remind the king that he had to enforce the law, whether he liked it or not. At the end of the day, Darius had to call Daniel and have him put into the lion's den, end quote. Uh, This lion's den, guys, was a subterranean cave. And uh, it had an opening, at ground level, and the thing must have went down at least 20 feet, maybe deeper, Uh, deep enough so that these lions couldn't climb out or jump out, obviously, okay? And so uh, they had this situation where, you know, they had this cave, uh, might have been used as a cistern at one time, filling it with water, uh, and then using it to water gardens and things. Uh, maybe it was that at one time, but now it's been changed into a, uh, a lion's den. They might have cut uh, some passageways on either side to keep the water drained out. You didn't want to drown the lions if it rained and so on. So, but you, you get the idea of this what this was. And um, a person was thrown into this lion's den. And guys, if the fall didn't kill him, 20, 30 foot fall, if that didn't kill him, well, the lions would have almost immediately killed the person who hit the ground there because they were kept hungry. They were kept hungry to make sure that whoever was thrown into that den of lions was ripped to shreds and eaten quickly. Pretty rough way to go. now, I don't believe the king threw Daniel into this lion's I think he had him lowered down with ropes. He loved Daniel. You know, I mean, at least I could do that for you, Daniel. Okay? I mean, you know, I'm not going to add insult to injury and knock you down into this thing. I'm, we'll lower you down. Once you're down there, you're on your own. You know? I mean, the king's statement to Daniel, your God whom you serve continually, he will deliver you seems more to me like words intended to comfort Darius than Daniel trying to talk himself into this. Your God's going to deliver you. Right, well, verse 17. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. So they had a stone that they used to then cover the opening with. And that would probably help people not fall in this thing inadvertently. (laughs) You want to cover that thing. Um, But can you imagine this? Now think about this. The sun has gone down. Whatever light was coming from the moon or stars... Once they put that rock on top of that opening, it was pitch black in that lion's den. Can you imagine being thrown into a den full of lions and then they cover it, it's pitch black. You hear these lions, and they know where you are, they can smell you, but well, you're waiting to wh- where's it coming from? Where, where am I going to get it from, right? Can you imagine the horror, the anxiety? Well, I'm sure it didn't last that long, they got you pretty quick. The only light I'm thinking Daniel had that night, as we're going to see, an angel was sent by God to stop the mouth of the lions. And I believe that that angel, well, being in the presence of God, they radiated the glory of God. And that was probably the only light that Daniel had. It's the only light he needed, right? only light he needed. So verse 17, And the king sealed it with his own signet ring, And with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now the king went to his palace and and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him. So he didn't play his iPod that night, okay? Uh, You know, no music. He's in mourning. He's fasting. He's not sleeping because he loves Daniel, right? He's had a miserable night. Personally, I think Daniel slept well. I, I really do. You got an angel there. The angel's protecting you. In fact, I think the angel was causing the lions to become like little kitty cats. Well, big kitty cats. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, they all kind of got around Daniel and he laid his head on one and they kept him warm. He, He slept good. Darius had a rough night. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions And when he came to the den, I love this, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. A lamenting voice. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel? He's calling down to the, Daniel, the servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? (laughs) Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me, because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done nothing wrong before you. Then the king was exceedingly glad for him, and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him, because he believed in his God. One commentator pointed out that according to the Medo-Persian law, if a person was guilty of a capital offense and having been thrown into the lion's den was still alive by morning light, well, they were subsequently pardoned. Subsequently, they were pardoned. And it probably had to do with their belief system. I mean, if a man could stay alive from sundown to sunup in a den of hungry lions, well, as superstitious as they were, they believed that obviously that person had been protected by the gods. So the gods had willed that person to live. Who are we to to demand his death? So if the gods have willed he live, he's pardoned. That's probably the thinking behind this. Although Spurgeon thought of it a different way. Uh, he said, and I quote, It was a good thing the lions didn't try to eat Daniel. They never would have enjoyed him. Because he was 50% grit and 50% backbone. <laughs> I like that. Also, as I was studying for tonight, I read how a teacher once asked a Sunday school class of children if they thought Daniel was afraid when he was put into that den of lions. One little girl answered, I love, you think kids don't, they're listening, Uh, they can be pretty sharp. One little girl answered, I don't think he was scared because one of the lions was the lion of the tribe of Judah who was in there with him. You know, I wouldn't mind her being on staff here. I, there's a child that knows her Bible. All right, verse 24. And the king gave the command, and they brought those men who had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the... Now, they didn't lower them with ropes. They cast, The king cast them into the den of lions, them, listen, their children and their wives... And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Wow. Now, people have a lot of fault with this because why were the children and the wives of these men killed as well? Look, we don't live in ancient Persia. You have to understand something. These oriental dictatorships were brutal. And they intended punishment to be brutal so that it deterred crime. I'm not backing it. I'm just telling you what they thought. In fact, one ancient writer named Aminius uh, Marcellinus wrote of the Persians, I'm quoting him, The laws among them are formidable, by which on account of the guilt of one, all the kindred perished. All family is put to death. Obviously, that would be a big deterrent against crime. But look, I think Darius was so angry with these guys who had tricked him that he probably would have cast them to the lions even if Daniel had perished in the lion's den. I think they must have underestimated how much the king loved Daniel. I I don't know what they were thinking. And by the way, just who was thrown into the lion's den? I thought about that. Couldn't be 120 leaders, all of them and their families. You couldn't fit them all in there. It must have been a group, small group, maybe the two other governors but there must have been a small group that was spearheading this whole thing. They were the real, the organizers of this whole conspiracy to trick the king. and you know, I don't know how many there were, but there wasn't 120-plus family members that I'm convinced about. Verse 25, then King Darius wrote, "To all peoples, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree." that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who was delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. You know, guys, as I was thinking about the lessons we could learn from this and there are many I'll let you wrestle with some of the ones that God is even speaking to you about right now that you're kind of gleaning from this story but one lesson I think we can learn from this story and I thought this was something that we should take to heart Um, first of all the forces of evil are relentless aren't they the devil never takes a vacation the forces of evil and I'm talking about those forces that are against the people of God are relentless And when you're a spirit-filled person walking with God, things don't often get easier the older you get. Often they get tougher. Often they get tougher. We think that as we get older in the Lord, things should get easier. But if you're a spirit-filled person, and that's the key, walking with the Lord, I don't think things get easier. I think your faith is tested even in greater ways. And so in many ways, things get tougher. When Moses was 80... God called him to lead his people out of Egypt. That was quite a test and a walk of faith, right? When Caleb was 85, he took on the greatest challenge of his life. He went ahead and he uh, defeated the, uh, the giants in the territory that had been given to him and his family. And he was happy to do it. Give me the giants. I don't want to need. This guy, I love Caleb. He says, you know, I'm 85 years old. You know, I, I don't want to fight too hard. Can I, can I have that area over there where it's kind of not much going on? So I can just, you know, settle in and just have a peaceful, you know. No, he said, look, see that mountain range over there? We know there's giants there. I want that for my inheritance. I want to fight the giants. Here's a guy who wasn't retiring or wanting an easier life. He wanted to have his greatest challenges ahead of him. Wow. And I see the same thing here with Daniel, 87 years old. Are you kidding me? I mean, and he is being tested like this. Well, let me just say this, though. I really think this whole incident was more for Darius' benefit than it was to test Daniel's faith. Because what seems to have happened through this whole situation? You read in verses 25 to 27, it sounds like Darius has gotten saved now. We saw in chapter 4 how Nebuchadnezzar got saved, right? Because of the God of Israel and and all. And Daniel uh, being a witness and so on. Now it looks like, uh, it looks like DeRice has gotten saved. That's why I say God will sometimes put us through great trials. And of course, there's a benefit to us. We, we, our faith is increased. But often to put us on display. that unbelievers see how we handle these things and how we give glory to God and how God rescues us and works it all out. And the world is watching. They know what we talk about. They know that we wear the Jesus T-shirt or we have the bumper sticker around the car or we carry the 40-pound uh, you know, Schofield reference Bible with us. Big deal! And we don't know if you're going to live what you claim to believe. And that's how God saves many. By putting us, thanks Lord, by putting us in difficult spots that is, we, as we walk with God for many years, we know what we should do. We don't always do it, but we know what we should do. Trust our God, be faithful to Him, And just let him take care of it. So Daniel was taken up out of the lion's den. And no injury, whatever was found on him. Because, listen, he believed in his God. Turn to Hebrews 11 as we bring this to a close. Of course, Hebrews 11, as we've already studied this uh, book and this chapter, is called the Great Hall of Faith. And it showcases some of the greatest examples of faith throughout the history of God's people. And uh, around verse thirty three, the author, who I believe was Paul, begins to kind of wrap things up on this hit parade of, <laughs> of men and women who exhibited tremendous faith. But he now he starts talking in general of, of others without naming them. Hebrews eleven verse thirty three, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. What do you think he's got in mind there? Daniel, of course, verse 34, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Now, if he had stopped there, we wish he would have in part, but if the writer had stopped there, he would have left us with the impression that if we just had enough faith, we could be delivered from any danger. But Immediately after that, we read in verse 35, And others who had great faith. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, uh, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. And he ends by a saying of, of whom the world was not worthy. Listen, guys, and we're done. True faith trusts God. See, here's the thing. We have a lot of people teaching that faith is a force that operates by certain laws like gravity. If you only knew the laws of faith, you could turn this force, aiming at God, and pretty much write your own ticket with God. You'd be in the driver's seat. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is simply trusting God. It's not trying to control God. It's simply accepting what God has chosen in a given situation. True faith trusts God no matter what he decrees. In my circumstance, even if a person isn't spared from death, as Job expressed true faith in chapter 13 of his book, he said, though he slay me, yet I will still believe in him. Guys, there will always be lions, quote-unquote, in our lives things that threaten to destroy us. And they take different forms, don't they? I thought of some D words, maybe because of Daniel, who knows. But you know, things like disease, debt, divorce, depression. Many people are battling with depression in our culture. Much of it, these things, these lions, if you will, have been brought into their lives by their enemies, the enemies of Jesus Christ, who hate us, who wanted to destroy us. Why? Because the king loves us. They can't get at the king. So they have to settle for the next best thing to get at, to hurt, to destroy those the king loves. Didn't Darius love Daniel more than any other leaders in the kingdom? That's why they hated him, right? You know, the devil hates us because God loves us. He hates us with a passion. You know, he can't get at God, but he can sure get at God's kids. Our responsibility? 1 Peter 5.8, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion uh, looking for someone to devour. So stay alert, be alert, and secondly, take comfort. Psalm 34, verse 7, for the angel of the Lord is a guard. He surrounds and defends all who fear the Lord. We have guardian angels. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that. God has given to us angels to watch over us. Does God need angels to watch over us? Can he do a good enough job by himself? Of course. Does God need any of us to serve him in any capacity? Of course not. But he's made us to be productive. We all have ministries. The angels have ministries. You know what they are? They're us. They're us. And some of us give these angels a real run for their money. All right? But God said, I got you covered. Now, does that mean that we'll never face, that the devil will never be able to get at us? Of course not. We just talked about that. But it does mean the devil will never be able to touch us if God hasn't allowed it. Wouldn't you rather be going through difficult times in the will of God as opposed to going through difficult times outside the will of God? I don't know about you, but If I know I'm walking with God and I'm in the will of God and people are coming against me and I'm being attacked, I sleep well at night because I know that God must be allowing it for a reason. Lord, my life is in your hands. If you allow them to destroy me, I'm going to still trust you because my faith is not built on what you do for me or don't do for me. It's built on who you are. We'll end with verse 28. So, this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. He's 80, how many years old? He's not diminishing in fruit at all, is he? Psalm 1, the righteous person doesn't walk with the ungodly, doesn't stand around with sinners. Their delight is in the law of the Lord. They're like a tree planted by the rivers of water who bear fruit in its season. When you are a man or woman of God walking in the Spirit, it doesn't matter how old you are, you are going to continue to bear fruit as long as you are staying close to God. If you retire, and there's a lot of Christians who are retiring, I don't get it. You know, they come to a point in their lives, let all the young people do all the work. I'm going to retire now, okay? Well, you know what? Forgive me, but you, you're not allowed to retire. <laughs> you're not allowed to retire. Your best years of ministry could be ahead of you. Don't you want to be there for that? Okay. Like Caleb, don't you want to go after the biggest challenges when you've been walking with the Lord for many years and you've learned a lot of things? Somebody once posed the question, would you like to be 25 again? Believe it or not, I have to think about that. And here's what I came up with. Yes, but only if I could know everything I know now. Because if you're going to make me 25 and I'm going to be the, the same dumb doofus I was back then, forget about it. I'd rather stay right here. If I can retain all I know, all I've learned about God, all the, the knowledge of his word, if I can keep all of that and be 25, let's go for it. If not, keep it. Because youth means nothing. if It is not rooted in a love and a commitment for the Lord. Amen. All right. Next week, God willing, we get into chapter seven and we're going to shift gears now. going to shift gears. I'll tell you what I mean next time. Father, We thank you, Lord, for your many blessings. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace. And we praise and thank you, Lord, for your great love. And Lord, we ask that you would make us like Daniel, like Caleb, that the older we get, the more on fire for you we we become. And the less we want to retire, the more we want to fight greater battles for your glory. Give us hearts of warriors, Lord, that we might fight the good fight of faith all the way to the time that... Angel shouts, the trumpet sounds, and we hear you say, Come up here, and you rapture us into your presence. Thank you, Lord. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.